Lord, may we see the truth that is in your Scripture. And Lord, may you use it to draw us closer to you. Lord, so please bless tonight. I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we continue tonight. This is our our third, probably the last week that I will spend on unconditional election. We'll see. I'm not certain about that. The the unconditional election of the tulip certainly is key. If you're just getting on board in this, I strongly recommend you go back uh, to the very beginning of this series, even listen to the introductory message to it, covering who John Calvin was and and how the doctrine came into being. And we, we discussed important things then, and they are very important, because we look at John Calvin's life, and the influence that he had on his life was Augustine. And I think that's important to understand, especially for Mary, with Augustine and with his writings, you can see the flow of what Calvin was talking about from what Augustine wrote into his institutes that he produced, for the most part, within, quote, one year of conversion. That, too, is problematic. Um, And then we got into the T of the tulip. And the tulip actually wasn't put in a systematic fashion until after even Calvin had died. All of it was based on his institutes, of course. But there was a debate between Arminianism of the day and the Calvinists, which still rages. And we are neither Arminianist or Calvinist. I disagree with both. Um, Arminianism is false in many ways. For one thing, they believe a person can actually lose their salvation. That is not possible whatsoever. And, and, uh, and we'll cover that when we get to perseverance of the saints. When we get to the P of the tulip, we will be covering that because some people think, well, we could agree on the P of the tulip. But no, that is not true. I, I will read to you statements that will completely shock you. We are eternally saved for one reason, according to the Word of God, and we will see that, because of the justification that has been given to us, because of the righteousness of Christ that is put on our life. You say, well, all those believe that. Oh, no, that is not the case. And we'll see that, though, when we get to perseverance of the saints. That is confusing what is going to be fruit of salvation with making it a root of salvation. The perseverance is a fruit of salvation. It is not effectual in producing salvation, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I enjoy getting into the P of perseverance of the saints. And, uh, um, and then we, we began the introduction into the unconditional election. Unconditional election is the idea, to sum it up, it is this. It is that God, before the foundation of the world, they understood every single person that would ever live from Adam to the very last person. And within that scope, God looked into the future and he predetermined He determined, I'm going to use their words, because we're going to look at these words used in different ways today. Ordained, chosen, elected. um, That God, and this is from the Calvinist standpoint, that God preordained, that he chose, that he elected of all those multitudes of, let's say, 10 billion. I'm not exactly sure what the number would be, probably closer to 12. Uh, Pre-flood, it could have been actually enormous population, so it's really hard to say. Um... But nonetheless, God looked down at all the mass of humanity that would exist, and God predetermined whom he would save and whom he would not. That's the essence of it right there. And really, the others all form when Calvin was putting, when John Calvin was putting that together, it was from that he was, he was using what would be considered, and, and, and once you believe that, the problem is he was using deductive reasoning almost to go into the other elements. Okay, well, if this is true, then this has to be true. And he's not wrong on that. If you start with that premise, there's certain things that have to be true. 
And that's where he was, that's where he was running with it. But nonetheless, the, the, the heart of this thing is unconditional election. And, of course, we looked at all the scriptures, and, and just not all, excuse me, we looked at just some of the scriptures where the Bible is clear, 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 whosoever will. And that is so commonly dismissed, and it's actually, to me, I find that frightening at times, because the Bible is so clear. When it comes to hermeneutics, when it comes to Bible interpretation, when you're in Bible college, and this is hermeneutics 101, it'll probably be in your very first class, if you attend Bible college, you're in hermeneutics, probably the very first rule they're going to give you, it it, it goes something like this, that you would never allow a statement in the Bible that is not clear to change what is clear. And that's very true. You don't do that. Um, and so we looked at John 3, 6. I mean, I have them all still listed here. All the verses dealing with where the Bible stresses. Whosoever. It's understanding that is what God in his sovereignty has chosen. All right. So uh, we talked a couple weeks ago, we talked about that. Then we got into some of the proof texts, and that's where we're at right now, getting into several of the proof texts that are commonly used in Scripture. So we come to another one we're going to start off with is Acts 13.48. I'm going to be covering this evening Acts 13.48. Then we're going to get into Matthew 20.16 and Matthew 22.14. And then we're going to dive into Romans chapter 9. And then... I might do it at the end of the one. We really need to do a, 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 a little bit of a, a biblical study on ordained, chosen, and elect. So let's get into Acts 13.48. Now, if you remember, by the way, you can go back and listen to that sermon as we're going through the book of Acts. I covered this, and you can see it so well. That's one thing that's great about expository preaching. You can get things in such clear context. You're like, oh, yes, I see that. And that is the case of what's going on here in 13.48. Um, when you just remove it from context... It can be a challenging verse, but within context, it is not at all. It is not at all. And, of course, in many of the writings and defense and the teaching of, of Calvinism, this is a popular section. White, in his book, if you're not familiar with who he is, he's, he is actually a very strong when it comes to apologetics, and he is a Calvinist, and so much of his apologetics focuses on that. He gives four full pages just to this verse. Um, and so we have to look at what is this verse saying in context. Um, and by the way, this word here, ordained, is used eight times in Scripture. It never one time, nor does it here, ever meant divine decree. All right? Um, this verse, if you understand what's taking place here, where Paul is preaching, was comparing the rejection of the Jews in the synagogue as compared to the acceptance of of the Gentiles. Those that are doing the ordaining, and the word simply means to choose, to determine. That's what it means. The ones that are doing the determining in this verse, doing the choosing in this verse, are the Gentiles choosing to believe. This is not with a divine decree before God, before the foundation of the world. What it's telling us, look what's taken place. The Jews have rejected The Gentiles have accepted that as many of them that chose to believe, they were saved. That's exactly right. That of those Gentiles that made the choice, that determined on believing this. That's what brings about salvation. 
it in no way in context, it all is teaching about some divine decree given before the foundation of the world. It is saying the Gentiles determined to believe as compared to those who rejected. So as many as those determined to eternal life believed. Those who had said, in other words, it's saying those who made the choice of the Gentiles, we are believing this. The context of who's doing the ordaining is not God. It is the Gentiles who chose to believe. Now, let's go, on to the, let's go on to these two together. Let's look at Matthew chapter 20 and Matthew chapter 22. For time's sake, I will not read the parable of Matthew 20, but I will read the parable of Matthew 22. I will talk about the parable of Matthew uh, chapter 20, though. Because they both end with statements by Christ that are used as proof text for Calvinism. Verse 16 says, So the last shall be first, and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. Obviously, the last statement is what is focused on. And, and this is a parable here that is, is dealing with, and you can go back and listen to this sermon as well. We went through the Gospel of Matthew, and I, and I dive into this parable. This is dealing with, with the labor who, with the, the, the um, with, um, where's, where's my terminology at here? Um, this is the, the farmer who had hired the laborers into his field. And so, if you remember, he, he, there was negotiations that took place with the first group, and so he determined, this is what I'm going to pay you. And he told him, this is what I'm going to pay you. And you have some that come all at 5 o'clock. They're going, to, they're going to hardly work at all, basically about an hour. That's it. And they end up, and, 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 the, and the good man, as it refers to him, gives the same pay to all. And, of course, those who work the heat of the day, they were furious at it. And that's the essence of this parable. And, and so well, I might as well tie in that. I'm, already, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I might as well continue along that thread right now. The parable of Matthew 20 is dealing with this. God's goodness as compared to his justice. If you think on Wednesday night's message, this one looks perfect. Because they didn't understand God's goodness, they looked at it as unfair. Because we're so used to God's goodness that when something just occurs, we view it as unfair. What happened to those men when they got their pay was just. It was agreed upon. And then the good man demonstrated goodness to those that worked the last hour. All right? That's, that's, so that's the teaching of the parable. What we learn from the parable is this. We learn God rewards, rewards. We're not dealing with salvation. Based not on length of service, but on faithfulness to him. Willingness and trust. Which that one did. I, I mean, those came in. At the end, think, I'm going to preach, re-preach that sermon, but it's important for understanding what, why Christ says what he says. Think of the faith of the last group. I mean, because their need was so great, they're still there at the last hour. Please hire us. We need this. And he, they don't even agree to a price. All right, we'll just go out and work. I'll, I'll, I'll give you something. The first group negotiated. Don't negotiate with God. Just put your faith in him and you'll be amazed at what he can do. All right? So we learn reward is based not on length of service, but on faithfulness and trust. 
We also learn from this parable that God rewards us when we seize the opportunities that are given to us by God. And we also learn that covetousness blinds you to God's goodness. It's what the parable teaches. It is not a parable on the gospel. Don't add to it because you see key buzzwords that come from Calvinism. You stay with context. All right? Now let's go to Matthew 22. For this one, I need to read the parable. It says, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding that they would not come. And they would not come, excuse me. And he sent forth other servants saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but, that, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage... So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found. Now get this, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. He saith unto him, Friend, how, canst thou, uh, how camest thou in thither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. We have the statement uh, uh, once again here dealing with this parable. Let's dive into this. Now, Matthew 22 in context is in a series of three parables. Notice how it starts in verse 1. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again. This is the third straight parable. The reason for the three parables was because, remember, the Jewish leadership was trying to trip him up. They wanted him arrested. They wanted him taken off the scene. And so they came to him with a question back in 21, uh, um, uh, uh, by what authority do you do these things? Who gives you the authority to do this? And Christ says, you know what, I'm going to give you a question. He said, let's talk about John the Baptist. He said, why don't you tell me where his authority came from, and then I'll answer you. And, of course, they met and they converted. They said, we can't answer that. We know it's going to happen. If we say of God, he's going to say, well, why don't you believe him then? But if we say of men, the people believe John was a prophet. we got trouble here. So, he tells Christ, so they tell Christ after they meet up, says, we can't tell. And Christ says, then I'm not telling you. But he goes on to me, he goes, but let's go into some stories. And he gives them three parables in a row, all identical in teaching. All right? So let, let me cover briefly these three parables that are here. All right. The first parable dealt with two sons. The father instructs them to go to work. The first says, 
I will not go, but later he does. The second says, I will go, but he does not. Jesus asked, uh, you know, which one did the will of the Father? And, of course, it was the first. And Jesus said then how the publicans and harlots will go into the kingdom of God before them. All right, he's dealing with groups of people. The second parable, same thing, was a householder, built his vineyard, let it out to farmers, and those farmers were replaced, and how, uh, um, anyhow, it's, it's dealing with the replacement. Uh, again, I, I need to read that one. I'm, I'm getting myself confused in my notes here. This is where he sent them out, and they, he sent the servants to gain of, his, of the reward from the farms, from lending them out, but they, they, entreated, they mistreated the servants. They ended up killing him. So finally he says, I will send my son. He sends his son, and they kill him. Um, that's the second parable that takes place. Um, the third parable is this one. Now, let's look at this one. You're invited to the king's son's wedding. Each of these things, of course, building here. The servants go. They're sent out to, um, to invite the guests, but the invited guests don't come. He sends forth other servants, stressing, listen, the time is now. It's now. The animals have been prepared. The oxen have been killed. Remember, there's no refrigeration. Once the oxen get made, it's time for the wedding. There's no delay. He's saying, listen, the time is now. Come for the wedding. Everything's ready. The animals have been killed. Still, they don't come. Some made light of it. They went back to their farms, went back to their place of business. Just incredible. Then there were some... They were not indifferent about it, but they were hostile towards it. They took the king's service, treated them spitefully, and killed them. All right? Remember, this is all in response to the question of his authority and who he is from the uh, leadership of Israel. The king sees what happens, and he's furious. He destroys those men, and he destroys their city. Then he instructs to go into the highways, and as many as, you'll, as many as ye shall find. As many as ye shall find. So they went and invited all they found, both bad and good. And the wedding now had guests. Then something else takes place. The king arrives. Everybody has their garments on, which are furnished by the king in these weddings. All right. It is the king who would provide the robe for the wedding. And there, were some, there were some cases, but that, that is neither here nor there, where if that wasn't going to be the place, you're supposed to wear the very best you absolutely had. But for the most part, the king would provide that garment. The king shows up, and somebody's there doesn't have the garment on that was provided by the king. He didn't have on the proper garment. The king asked him about it, and he uses the word friend. The same word is used three other times um, that we see here in Matthew. In Matthew 11, uh, in a parable of the children playing the markets and calling their friends, it's used in Matthew 20 with the parable of the laborers that we already talked about. And then again, in Matthew 26, Judas Iscariot is called friend. All right? When it's used here in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew, every time it is used, it is dealing with those who are self-willed and rejecting the goodness of God. The man, of course, is speechless. There's nothing he can say, obviously. And he is removed from the wedding immediately. 
once again, this parable in context is a part of a series of three that is teaching the rejection of the Messiah by the nation of Israel and the gospel then going to the rest of the world. That is the purpose of the parable. The parable in Matthew 22, it broke it down into three groups. The apathetic, I'm going back to my farm. I'm going back to my merchandise. It, it, not only the apathetic did it break it down to, but also the abhorrent. Those were the ones who killed the servants. And then, of course, it broke it down to a third class of people, the artificial. Those who think they're a Christian, but they're not. They're not coming in the garment provided by God. That's artificial. It is Christ's righteousness that clothes us, and that is it. It is in this context that we come across verse number 14. Many are called and few are chosen. It's in the context of these three parables and what takes place. First notice, those chosen were bidden to the marriage, not foreordained to go. They were bidden. Those who showed up, it went out, just head out, bring guests in. Both bad and good. And those who chose to respond have come in. The parable, again, being about Israel's rejection. Although they have been invited, they're the first guests. They chose not to come. But as we see, it is only those who come through Christ's righteousness. That's the key. The lesson is this when you come to Matthew twenty-two fourteen: One is not chosen because you are a Jew. One is not chosen because uh, you were, the first bidding came to you. Just like that's the same lesson of the other parables. You respond to the invitation given, coming in Christ's righteousness. That is how it takes place. That is what God has chosen. Those who choose to respond to my invitation, coming with my garment, that's who's chosen. Not based on some preordained, that's not the message. This is dealing with the rejection of Israel, the gospel going to the rest of men. Israel was, we refer to Israel biblically and correctly as God's what nation? Chosen nation. That's correct. And he's letting them know, you know what? You're not in because you're a Jew. That, you had better respond to my invitation coming through the clothing, I will provide. That's who's chosen by God. Just like all, as he said in John 3.16, John 5.27, that for those that God predetermined in his sovereignty, that any single person that decides to place their faith in Christ are his. Let's talk about these words more to give greater understanding. 
Again, these words are often used as proof for unconditional election. Let's look closer. The argument is, if God chose you, you are elect. And as we're going to see as we get into irresistible grace, you can't even resist. Let's look at this. Let's go to Mark chapter 3 first. Remember, in all three parables, it was not dealing with personal salvation before God, but the rejection of the nation of Israel and the gospel going to the rest of the world. So let's, let's look at how some of these words are used to see if the logic holds up of how they're used when it comes under John Calvin's Institutes. Mark chapter 3. Oop, I'm in Matthew. That's not going to help me one bit. <clears throat> Just a couple of verses here I want you to look at. Let me back up one here. Yes. Love it. All right. Let's, let's go to verse 13. We'll look at 13 and 14. And he, this is Jesus going up. And he goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would. And they came unto him. And he ordained twelve that they should be with him. Look at John 6. Let's go on over to John chapter 6. Again, we have the, the buzzwords being used. John chapter 6, the last two verses. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. Speaking of Judas Iscariot. Well, in that case, of course, they're going to say, well, yeah, well, we understand that. But that was Judas. We're using the same words you like to use everywhere else out of context. To say, chosen, ordained. Did he not call them and choose these twelve? One of them's not even saved. Use the words with consistency. You know what defines how the word is used? Is context. Context. Now listen to me. I believe this to be true with all of my heart when it comes to the doctrine of, of Calvinism based on, his, on John Calvin's Institutes. Had he never wrote those, and we were to remove the writings of Augustine, Okay, let's just say that in the course of human history, those two events do not occur. And I, I assure you, John Calvin will be the first to admit it. If Augustine's writings don't exist, neither do the Institutes. So let's say that doesn't happen. There is no way, apart from that influence, you read this Bible and you come to a conclusion that Calvinism teaches. Any more than you would when you read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, and you would pause and go, you know what? There's a gap here. There must be millions and millions of years between verse 1 and verse 2. There is no way you would get that just by reading in context. 
You have to have that thought already heard. I remember a guy told me that. I, I told that to a guy once. This was at the, this was doing, I was doing that debate on it, on that Baptist forum. And, and a few people were messaging me, and, and, and they were usually Calvinists. We'd have some good discussions. And so one had said, he goes, listen, so you know, I'd have to disagree with one statement. He, he goes, he goes, um, he goes I, I'm getting ready to go into this Romans 9. He said, I became a Calvinist without, I can't remember how he worded it, without ever being taught. I, I really wish I missed his exact, or something along those lines. He said, it happened for me when I read Romans chapter 9. And, and, and so I, I challenged him. I said, really? I said, let me ask you this. Are you telling me that you never, you knew nothing of the doctrine of Calvinism? You had never heard it one time. You were not, and I went through it as clearly as I could. And then he came back and says, well, no, I had knowledge of it. And I said, yes, that's my point. Because of that, what was there, when you got to something like that, that was affecting how you viewed that verse. So now, let's go to Romans chapter 9. There's no way when you, when you would go through the word of God and you see God is not willing that any should perish. That whosoever believeth in him. There's just no way you would conclude that. And by the way, you can see all these times that we've went through this. Please, you just read on at what God, like when we looked at Ephesians last week, how God, what he chose for us before the foundation of the world is that upon salvation, all that we would receive, that this is what he wanted to do for us, how we're sin did abound, grace did much more abound. The spiritual blessings we would have in heavenly places. Now, if, if you know, in the book of Romans we're going through, we're going to get to this. When you get to Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, are what we call parenthetical. All right? You, you could almost take Romans, finish chapter 8, and jump right into Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 is picking up, really, where Romans chapter 8 lifts off. Uh, um, takes, uh, yeah, where Romans 8 ceased, Romans 12 is really picking up from that point. But we have a really important three chapters here that are parenthetical. All right? And within Romans 9, 10, and 11, there's something very important that is discussed. Matter of fact, it happens to deal with the exact same point. You notice the consistency is here throughout. The rejection of Israel and the engrafting in of the Gentiles. Let's look at verses 11 through, through 13 of chapter 9. He said, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, that's, this, is the, the, this is where Romans 9, 10, 11 end up going with this, and these are some of the key verses that I'm reading to you right here. And so, under the doctrine of Calvinism and in the Institutes, he develops this and expounds upon it in such a way that it is applying to personal salvation. That God has elected, 
some to salvation and others not. But is that what Romans 9 is teaching? It is not at all teaching that. It is not at all dealing with individuals. It is dealing with nations. This is not dealing with decrees about heaven and hell and where each person's going to go. Look in Genesis chapter 25. Let's look at what is being quoted here from both two places, Malachi and Genesis 25. We have already seen how the Bible goes to whosoever will. That how you become chosen of God in relation to salvation are those who come to faith in Christ. That's what God has determined. Now, let's, let's look at a couple of verses here. Let me find it. I think I'm going to go. There's a lot to read up, so we're not going to read all of it. Let me just find the one that I want. Yes. This is the prophetic portion here, and this answers our question to Romans 9. Look at verse 23. The Lord said unto her, listen, this, and this is what Paul is dealing with. I'm going to prove it in a second. Two nations are in thy womb. Romans 9 is dealing with nations, particularly the nation of Israel and their rejection of the Messiah. Two nations are in thy womb. Let's read on. And two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. The one people shall be stronger uh, than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. This is prophetic. This is not dealing with, when you go through the issues, he's trying to make this about Jacob and Esau, not two nations. That's the error in chapter 9. Let, let's, let's prove here that what Paul's quoting isn't dealing with them on an individual basis, but on a national basis. Because during the course of lifetime of Jacob and Esau, Esau never served Jacob. It never happened. He was dealing with two nations. Now, it certainly did come about that the descendants of Esau served the descendants of Jacob. But on a personal level, that is not true. It never happened. What Paul is dealing with in context is, is again, remember, think of Romans chapter, when he gets into Romans chapter 10, rather my prayer and heart's desire is that they might be saved, and they're going about to establish their own righteousness, ignorant of God's righteousness. He's dealing with his own, even personal pain, in the rejection of Israel, and how it all came about. And how all of a sudden, what happened to us? We're God's chosen nation. If all this is true, Paul, and Paul says, listen, here's what's taking place. Here's where you have rejected. And he's saying, listen, this this has been in place. This is nothing new. Romans 9 never teaches about God electing individuals, some people to heaven or some people to hell. It is dealing with the nation of Israel's rejection and the Gentiles being engrafted in. That's context. Well, what about verse 17? Let's go to verse 17 of Romans 9. We'll finish up here.
For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might shew, shew my power in thee, that uh, uh, my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Again, let's not add to what this says. That verse also in no way, even though that's how it's applied, in no way is this verse teaching about salvation, that God has elected some and elected some to heaven and some to hell. It's not even talking about that. You can't apply it that way. But what God did have in place for his glory and to show his power was a man that God had perfectly in place who knew his heart, put him in a position to show his glory and his power knowing exactly how this man would respond. But it's not dealing with the gospel. You want to know what God has chosen in his sovereignty for salvation? Those, it is an invitation to all men for all men. Remember, Romans, I mean, there's so many verses. But to me, the strongest that it completely collapses is the conclusion of Romans 5. Dealing with how one man's disobedient sin went upon all men, so by the obedience of one is the free gift to all men. That's what God chose. To all men. But you're certainly not saved unless you choose to believe. Unless you choose that repentance and faith in Christ alone. That's what the sovereign God has decreed. And it's right. The sovereign God is... The irony of this is this. And, and I, I personally feel that I have a much, much stronger view of God's sovereignty than a Calvinist does. God in his sovereignty was not threatened by man's free will. It was in God's sovereignty that he chose. When I will create man in my image. This goes with that. Free will. That didn't... God's not... In, with how powerful and how much control he has, that in no way was going to be able to affect that eternal God's plans at all. He made it part of it. You see, don't forget this. this. This is crucial. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. Um, he's all-knowing, all-powerful. He is not all-knowing because he decreed what would happen. Listen to me, that is not... The Scriptures nowhere teach that. It teaches his omniscience based on one thing. One thing only. He's God. Remember that. If all this ties together. If you eliminate any one of these, it completely collapses. Because it was built on a, on a system okay, of, of logic, deductive reasoning. If this is true, then this is true. And that logic, it started with the wrong premise. The logic used from that premise was correct. But it started with a bad foundation. Let me finish with some... Thri I wasn't going to get to this, but I think I should. The devil many times works in the same way. I think we all would agree with this. All right? For 6,000 years. If something works in one area, he'll, he'll keep going at it. 
I'm going to give you some comparisons between Islam and Calvinism. I'm going to read from each of their books. First, let's deal with fatalism. Then we're going to deal with love. I think I'll just stop at those two. You can also get into determinism and whatnot. Let me quote from the Institutes. Some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal, eternal damnation. And accordingly, as each has been created, one or the other of those ends, we say that he has been predestined to life or death. That is in the Institutes uh, 3, chapter 21, section 5. Okay, direct quote. Let's quote from the Quran. Allah leads astray whom he wills and saves whom he wills. Now from a, another source, not direct, this is, this is uh, expounding on that. Allah is exalted and pleased as he sends people to hell. This is the fatalistic claim of Islam. Fatalism is a belief uh, that events are fixed in advance for all time in such a manner that human beings are powerless to change them. In this case, Allah will send to heaven whomsoever he pleases and send to hell whomever he pleases. That is from a book called Unveiling Islam, page 31. Let's go on. In Islam, Allah is basically devoid of any love. There's a list of about 99 names of Allah And of those 90 names, only one includes a reference to love. And in that context of when that one time it is given, it is referred to only as those who are his own. Let me quote from a book. When Allah is discussed within the Islamic community, the absence of intimacy, atonement, benevolence becomes apparent. In all terms and titles, Allah one does not encounter terms of intimacy. Even the most faithful and devout Muslim refers to Allah only as servant to master. Allah is a distant sovereign. I certainly don't believe Calvinism takes it to that extent, but there is no doubt. To even quote from a title of a book that I do recommend reading, uh, which I thought was very appropriate by Dave Hunt, What love is this, when he described Calvinism? This is from a debate on it, and this is by Dave Hunt. He says, where is God's love? Not once in the nearly 1,300 pages of his institutes does Calvin extol God's love for mankind. Think about that. Again, we have extreme groups today that's all they talk about is love. That leads you astray. You had better talk about God in the way Scripture des- uh, describes him to us in all that he is, that he, that he reveals to us now. That is, his holiness is first, his, followed by his justice, followed then by him being love. Not once, let me read that again. In the nearly 1,300 pages of his institutes, does Calvin extol God's love for mankind? I mean, how could he? This one-sided emphasis reveals Calvinism's primary defect, the unbiblical limitations it places on God's most glorious attribute. 
something is radically amiss at the very foundation of this unbiblical doctrine. And it is. To somehow take this just, holy, and righteous God and and to come to the conclusions that are there is astounding when you consider that God is love. But it is not. It is in complete agreement when that sovereign, holy, just God, through grace, could show his love by whosoever will. Now, we all agree, both Calvinists and me alike, few there be that find it. Most will still go about to establish their own religion, their own ways, ignore God, kind of like what Christ described in the parable. Despitefully use it, not care about it, or fake. Or fake. So, more than likely, um, next week, in, or of course, I do think Brother Tom Suter is going to be preaching for us all day next Sunday. Um, I'm almost certain. But if he's not, we, uh, we will get into limited atonement. And we'll, we'll tie into that. That's, that's the one with, we're going to see it's a lot of semantic arguments between them. And there's a lot of what we refer to themselves as four-point Calvinists. And, and we'll tie into that when we get into limited atonement. That is the teaching that Christ only died for the elect. Okay? But we'll, we'll, we'll get into all that. But anyhow, with heads bowed and eyes closed, I certainly do still want to give time for you to respond. Maybe it's something you need to pray about here this evening. And, and let me ask this. Perhaps you're here and you are not certain that heaven is your home, that there has never been a time when you have placed your faith in Christ. You're worried you'd go to hell. You're just not sure of it. And you tell, Pastor, please pray for me. I don't know what's going to happen to me when I die. Please. If that's you, I certainly want to be a help to you. Would you just raise your hand? I won't call you out. All right. You put those down. Christian, if you need to come and pray, you come and pray. Father in heaven, I pray, you, I pray that you would bless this invitation, work in hearts and lives, Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Turn to page 174. And if you need to come and pray, you come and pray.
Amen. All right, if all hearts are clear, we'll pray and be dismissed.